Welcome to Kolisha, the podcast that gives Orthodox women a voice. Welcome back to Kolisha. This week and this month, we have a lot of preparation to do. It's the month of Elul. And for many people, that is associated with lots of different feelings and emotions and various things that we learned in childhood about the chuva process, about the mechila process. From a very young age, we always learned the four steps of chuva. We learned we have to regret our actions. We learned that our chuva has to be done a certain way in order to be accepted by Hashem. For many of us, it's a very fearful time. Um, from childhood, we learned that, you know, in the olden days, people used to pass out when they would hear the word Elul on Shabbos Mubarakim and all sorts of different messages that we got surrounding these days of awe. And I've been talking with an incredible woman who I'm so excited to have on as a guest this week about the psychology behind the chuba process as it relates to the Torah and halachos that are involved in the chuba and the chila process. So I'm really, really excited and honored to introduce Esti Marcus to talk about this topic and sort of develop it a little further for us, because many of us don't really take it further into adulthood. We sort of rely on these messages that we got as children, and I think it's so important and also so valuable. So Esti is a licensed clinical social worker. She graduated with her master's in social work from Toro, and she has postgraduate certification from the National Institute of the Psychotherapies in their integrative trauma program. And she also holds additional trainings in trauma-focused modalities. She works as a therapist in private practice in Brooklyn, New York, and she specializes in trauma. So welcome, Esti. Back to Kolisha. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me again. It's my pleasure. So our last talk that we did was very fascinating and it got a lot of really interesting feedback about it because we really explored these topics of trauma and attachment and so many different fascinating topics. But we also sort of wove through the Torah values that come along with those. And I know that one of the things that you focus on a lot is how modern psychology has learned so much but stuff that we sort of already knew from the Torah because those messages were there a very long time. And things like the chuva process, when you analyze it from a modern day psychology standpoint, are actually very beautiful and very healthy. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes the messages surrounding them are given over in a very fearful way um, and sort of scare kids. And sometimes we may carry that into adulthood. So tonight I wanted to explore with you the topic of chuva and then the topic of mechila as it relates to psychology. So Esti, thanks again for being here. And can you walk us through the steps of the chuva process and how that relates to what you do in practice? So firstly, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned, um, our last talk that we had, because it was very much about the transgenerational um, impact of trauma, especially um, for Jewish people. And we can't talk about how fearful the chuva process is sometimes given over to us um, without also acknowledging that it's related to our trauma history or perhaps it's related to our trauma history. Um, but we'll get into that a little bit maybe later in our talk. Um, 
So first, I just want to say that the four steps of tshuva, um, which we could understand as repentance, but I like to use the word repair, or literally it means to return, um, to focus on repairing a ruptured relationship. And a ruptured relationship can be with God. It can be with ourselves. It can be with our families. It can be with our friends. So the idea of hate, sin, I like to understand as a rupture in the relationship. And then the idea of tshuva is to repair that relationship. And I think that the four steps of tshuva have so much psychological wisdom in it that is very applicable during the time of Elul and Tishrei as we lead up to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But it's actually something that I have as a framework for my therapeutic work in general, because again, I think it has all the principles for repairing relationships. And so much of trauma work and therapeutic work is about repairing relationships, um, primarily the relationship with ourselves. So in order to really understand the wisdom in the four steps, I think we also may need to reinterpret we may need to give a different, a newer updated definition to each of the, these steps because they might have um, old interpretations that have old connotations to it. So the first step of, of the tshuva process um, is vidoy, which I think many people would interpret as confession. And that has a lot of connotations, maybe some of it absorbed from Catholic culture. Um, the idea of you confess something that you did wrong and the act of confessing it or announcing it to someone else, that in and of itself is healing in some way or reparative. But I don't think that that's really the idea in Vidoy. And I prefer to use the interpretation of acknowledgement, which is what literally the word vidoy comes from, lehodo or lehikvado, um, which means to acknowledge or admit. And so the first part of the tshuva process would be acknowledgement, which we could also understand as self-awareness, that we have to be aware that something is problematic. We even... We have to be aware that there's a rupture that's happened. We have to be aware that there's even a relationship that could possibly be ruptured in order for us to even do the first step in the tshuva process of acknowledging. And I just think that that's a really important part of it because we can think of maybe times where someone just does the confessing process and that can feel very dismissive or even more painful than not having it acknowledged at all. Like for example, if, if we do something wrong to a friend and then instead of acknowledging it with seriousness, we might say something like, I know I'm such a bad friend. I'm always coming late or I'm always ditching plans last minute. There can be, even if we said that in a more serious way, um, there can be this idea that just by saying it out loud, that's all that needs to be done. But it's not all that needs to be done. It's the first step in the whole process of tshuva. So step one would be acknowledging. Step two 
Clarata, I also think needs to be updated. So how are you taught to interpret the word Clarata? I would say regret based on what I've learned. Yeah. So that's often the word that's used. And to me, the way to understand regret, um, there's some fantasy involved in regret where we kind of loop back in this fantastical thought process of if only we could have done things differently. And it's very repetitive in nature and it keeps us very stuck in wishing and fantasizing that we could redo something. But I think that the proper or an updated way of understanding Harata is using the word remorse. And remorse allows for a little bit of room for acceptance that what happened happened, what was done was done. We cannot go back to redo it. And with that remorse, it's probably pretty similar to grief that it's over and done with. However, there's still room for repair. So we can't redo, but we can repair. So the idea of Kharata has much more to do with acceptance and pain of what has already happened but the key would be the acceptance of that, that there is no going back, there's only going forward. So that's an important part to understand about um, the chuva process. So that would be step two. It sounds almost like with remorse, it's a healthier version of regret because you're not sort of getting stuck in wishing or you know, you can go down all sorts of rabbit holes in your head when you regret something and you wish you could change the past, right? There's a lot of pain that can come along with that. And like you said, the fantasizing and you can sort of get stuck in this like loop in your head. But with yes. remorse, it's very interesting to frame it that way. Cause even though there are such similar words, I hear what you're saying, what the difference is with remorse, you sort of like putting it away and moving on. Yes. So it's the key would be the acceptance piece, like really recognizing that what has happened has happened. And I guess the example that I like to imagine regret as kind of pushing the gas while the engine's off of a car. You're going to flood the engine. You're not going to be able to move anywhere. But with acceptance, you can have the engine on and also have more of a direction of where you want to go moving forward. And do you have any practical tips or is it all sort of brain work, like the difference between the two? Like, how do you practically say, okay, I accept that I did X, Y, and Z. It was the wrong thing to do. Now I'm going to move on. Is that just all in the, in your head or is there a practical way to differentiate between the two? I think that's a great question. And I think this will be addressed if we talk, as we talk about the difference between shame and guilt. I think that will come up in a more practical way, but I, I always ascribe to the idea that the first step in any change or any practical change is first understanding the concept. So, um, but I think that's such an important part of this process to think more practically, which by the way, leads us straight to step three and four, which are the last two steps, which have more to do with the practical side of chuva. And that's um, aziva sahit, which is leaving the behavior behind 
And then Kabbalah al Ha'asid, which is um, making a plan for repair. And those are crucial parts of healing and repairing a rupture, creating space and trying to remove yourself as best as possible from the environment that led to the rupture, whether it's choices that we make um, or people that we're surrounded with or um, behaviors that we engage in. So trying to create space. So it's not trying to make an overhaul 180 sweeping extreme move, but creating space. Because with a little bit of space and distance, we have a little bit more of an ability to create change. And then um, Kabbalah al-Asid, the plan for repair, is really working practically to identify ways to support healing and growth um, so that this isn't just an idea, but that there's something practical and sustainable that we could create to help change happen. So I just want to run through like an example. It's a brief example just to maybe bring some of this to light. Um, let's say there's a mother who frequently shows up late picking up her child from daycare and she sees her child waiting there scared, unsure what's going to happen, sitting on the steps all alone. And she feels so terrible that she's been late. And so she says to her child, I'm so sorry that I was late picking you up. So she's acknowledging that she did something wrong or made a mistake and, and impacted her child. And then the next week, the same thing happens. And the next week, the same thing happens. And there's this cycle where she keeps on making the same mistake again. And the child learns to believe that this is just what's to be expected, that even though my mother says that she made a mistake and she's sorry, it's still going to happen. In order for practical, active change to happen, the mother needs to think about, well, what were the things that led to me being late? What are the circumstances that keep on getting in the way? Um, is it that I keep on losing track of time? Is it that I do something right before the time to pick up my child and I get caught up or distracted? And so asking those questions to try to understand more what is actually happening and then using the remorse and the acceptance that it happened and that there needs to be some sort of practical plan going forward. So it might mean setting an alarm. It might mean moving the certain activities that were interfering with the schedule to a different time. Um, it might mean enlisting help from someone else who can be responsible for picking up the child, but it has to be some practical way of actually repairing. And if that happens, eventually the child will learn that he can in fact rely on his mother to keep her work. It's so fascinating because as you're talking, right, obviously this example is about repairing a relationship between the mother and the kid, right? Although it's about this specific action or this specific behavior, at the root of it, it's a relationship issue, right? And as you're talking, I'm hearing about how these steps can be applied to so many different kinds of relationships, so many different kinds of scenarios. And I've only ever thought of these four steps as this quote unquote chuva process that we go through in Elul. I mean, obviously with the knowledge that you can go through this chuva process at any time throughout the year, 
but I always only related it to issues between me and Hashem, really, right? Like mm-hmm. it's between me and God, whatever is going on, even though it, there are certain Vinadam Lechaviru things too. But it's like that chuva process, it's these four steps relate to God. And I've never thought that these four steps could really be put into action in any relationship, which is so cool. Yes, I agree. And that's why I think that there's so much wisdom in it because we can use it. I think that one of the ways that we see wisdom in things is something that can just be expanded and expanded and applied to so many different areas. And this is definitely one of those things. And that's the crucial part is really thinking about all of this as a relationship. And to me, if you understand the concept of a relationship, it really takes that kind of old school unhealthy fear that we might've been exposed to out of the whole process. So there is still room for fear. Like for example, a mother in my example, who's late for her child, it would make sense that she would feel afraid of hurting her child or ruining the relationship. So there is room for fear, but it's much more about fear of impacting the relationship than fear of punishment or fear of being of retribution and and rejection or fear of the other party in the relationship right like when you get this message sort of as a kid that you know you'd be punished for certain actions very harshly or whatever but if you can reframe it in the way of you want to have a relationship with Hashem so you don't want to do these things you know that all plays into what you're saying, you know, rather than just viewing Hashem as the man in the sky, who's going to smite you, (laughs) you know, for everything wrong that you do. It's more about like, well, I'm in a relationship with this person and the same way you would want to make the other party of any relationship happy. You'd want to do what they want and what they appreciate and what they like. And you'd want to sort of be an active participant in the relationship to make them happy as well. That that Mm -hmm. same can be applied to Hashem. I think that that part also that you just said, being an active participant is such a crucial part in relationships. And that's like the idea of reciprocity where each party in a relationship is an active participant in the relationship, which means that each party takes responsibility for their part in it. And if that's how you're, engaging in relationships, then these four steps of tshuva are actually constantly happening. I mean, it's one of the ideas that happens all that we talk about all the time amongst therapists and in psychology, Um, just the idea in therapy of a rupture and repair, that there can be moments within the therapeutic relationship where there's a rupture between the therapist and the client, and then the work becomes repairing it because that's really what relationships are. There are ruptures and then repairs and ruptures and repairs. And hopefully the same ruptures are not happening over and over again, because if it's a healthy, sustainable repair, then we can leave that rupture behind. Um, But there will always be new ruptures or new ways to repair a relationship. And if you can repair it to be stronger than it was even before the rupture, then you're even at a better place, right? And that can also relate to the tuba process because if you like really take to heart the repair process and, you know, going through the whole process, acknowledging what you did wrong, et cetera, et cetera. But then 
when you make the Kabbalah to not do it again, and you really put something in place to help you move forward in a healthy way, you can come out even so much stronger than you mm-hmm. were before. And I That's think that like, goes to the concept of because the people who went through a true chuva process come out even stronger than someone who never went through that process. The relationship comes out stronger for sure. Right. Um, and that's like um, that. I think it's pretty famous um, analogy that's used with a rope between two people that if two people are holding a rope, but then you cut the rope, um, there's a big distance between them. But then if you take the two ends of the rope and you, you tie them together, the distance is actually closer or, or it's a shorter distance between the two people than there were before. So that's the idea that with each rupture and repair, you're actually creating a deeper connection both to yourself and to the other person. So those are just such important ideas, again, that happen in LL, but also all year round in all of our relationships. And I think it's impossible to talk about the steps of chuva without also talking about shame and guilt because they go hand in hand. And I think that they're often extremely misunderstood and it has a lot to do with repairing our relationship with ourselves and with others. So that's so interesting that you bring that up because in doing a little bit of background you know, information gathering for this episode that we're doing. Um, I was reading an article that went into a little bit of the Rambam's Hilchas Chuva, um, and they talk about the concepts of shame and guilt. And I wanted to read you a little um, blurb of what it says here, if that's okay. This is from a, a Yeshiva University publication, and it's from an article written by Avi Mushal and Martin Gala. The title is Understanding the Chuva Process of the Yamim No Ra'im. And it's very interesting because the Rambam, when he structures the halachos of tshuva, he asks, what is tshuva? And then responds with the requirement to abandon sin, remove it from our thoughts, and committing to never recommit the sin. He then adds almost as an addendum, v'chein, and the repenter should also regret his deeds. This framework reveals the Rambam's belief that the crucial step in chuva is the positive acceptance going forward, and that the component of regret is only required to ensure that he remains genuinely committed to moving forward. This is further demonstrated from the verse the Ramam says, After I have completed chuva, then I regret my previous sins. In other words, the Rambam believes that although there is a place for guilt in the chuva process, he only subscribes it to constructive guilt which inspires better behavior going forward and not destructive guilt, which ruins a person's mood and distances him further from his goal. So the most important part of the chuva process is simply to be better. In order to be better, you have to have a certain degree of guilt when you regret what you did. But his point is you shouldn't sit around and be completely overwhelmed by that guilt because that's destructive guilt. And I found that so interesting, especially because guilt is such a common phenomenon for Jews, it's almost a cliche, like we feel guilty about everything all the time. But the Rambam, where we derive all of the halachos of tshuva from, for the most part, is so careful to mention that the guilt is only a means to the end and not something to get stuck on. So I found right. that really fascinating. 
I find it fascinating too. And it's definitely related to both the things that we, we've talked about already. And also just what I understand as the difference between shame and guilt and how to use um, guilt constructively. Um, and it's interesting that you said about uh, Jewish guilt because that was definitely on my mind. Um, it's not exclusive to Jewish people that there is a culture of guilt, but it's definitely become like a, a trope, um, almost like a, a stereotype um, of the Jewish mother um, and the guilt that gets um, embedded. Um, and in, in my understanding, if there's a, a common theme of Jewish guilt, it's really not because guilt is a part of our Torah ideology, but it has more to do with our experiences of trauma. And that the type of guilt that you just referenced, the type where we get stuck in it and it's repetitive and it it's again, like my example before of like pushing the gas while the engine's off where you're not actually moving forward is actually a response to trauma often more than a means of healing and using guilt in a constructive way. So some people may be familiar with this, the differentiation between shame and guilt. And the most simplistic way to understand it is that shame is the statement of I am bad and guilt is a statement of I did a bad thing. And so with that differentiation, shame, has no room for forgiveness, has no room for healing, because if, if I am bad, there's nowhere to go from there, which is why shame really has no place in Jewish ideology. It's not really what's talked about in the Torah when it references guilt, uh, when it references like Ashamnu, like that word, I, I guess it's a similar word to shame. Maybe there's, um, that's the etymology of the word, but the concept of shame really has no place in Jewish or Torah ideology because we do not believe that anyone is bad. And the whole concept of Yom Kippur is about forgiveness. And if we believe that there's room for forgiveness, then we have to believe that no one is bad. But we do have a concept of guilt where we can acknowledge the mistakes that we've made and use it constructively to move forward. So the, I think the Jewish concept of guilt has much more to do with responsibility, taking responsibility and ownership of the choices that we make and being able to move forward with that um, versus shame. And practically, that's what, you know, you asked that question earlier about how can we practically move from regret to remorse and, and acceptance. So I want to just first alert us to that if we find ourselves in this ruminating loop where we can't move forward, where we keep on repeating in our minds like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I'm so stupid. I shouldn't have done that. I, I wish I could do it differently. Um, that should alert us that we're actually stuck in something more similar to shame than constructive guilt. And that could also alert us that we're probably in some sort of trauma pattern or trauma response than a real introspective um, experience. 
So that's just something that we should be, we could be more aware of and more attuned to that it could look like chuva, it can look like taking ownership and it can look like taking responsibility. But if the experience of it is as if we're a broken record looping back to the same spot over and over again, then we're probably in a trauma state or an experience of traumatic shame than healing and introspection. Can you give an example of like, you know, a situation where that might occur, like just to be, to make it a little bit more relatable um, and more concrete, less abstract. A situation in which shame versus guilt might occur. Yeah. Or like where someone might get stuck in that loop and, you know, that would sort of be a red flag to them as it relates to trauma. Well, I think it's like what I was just saying that if someone finds themselves constantly going back to like the quote unquote, the scene of the crime mm-hmm. and maybe um, fantasizing about being able to do things differently or going back in time or some narratives that put them in the victim position where they're helpless to do anything about it. So yeah, if only the world had done this differently, or if only this other choice would have been made, getting stuck in that if only place or the why me place, why is this happening to me? um, That alerts us that there's more going on. We may be more familiar with those kind of narratives and think that that has to do with chuva, but that's actually much more related to a trauma response. Interesting. Okay. And I just want to pick on something that you said, because this is something that I've heard. So I'm curious to hear, um, to sort of clarify it, because there has been a lot of awareness lately about shame, right? And you hear a lot of people in the world of psychology saying, you know, don't put shame on people, shame isn't good, etc. You know, similar to what you were just saying. And then on the other hand, you'll have people maybe from a little bit of an older generation or more traditional way of thinking, who will say something like, why are we erasing all shame, there has to be some shame. If, for example, as a parent, your kids are never ashamed of anything, then you're going to raise a bunch of spoiled kids who think they could get away with anything or as adults if we're never ashamed of anything then we're never going to regret what we've done and move on to do better so I just want to clarify from what you're saying is it that the shame is totally wrong but it needs to be replaced with guilt as a healthier method or that or is there a place for shame at all I don't believe that there's a place for shame the way that I understand shame and this is based on different books that I read and different very wise people in the therapy field is that shame is the experience of a rebuffed attempt to connect. So when we try to connect, but that attempt to connect is rebuffed, the experience that we end up having is shame. And sometimes there, there can be something constructive that comes out of a rebuffed attempt to connect in that if we can access guilt or if there's something that we have done wrong um, or if we have made a mistake that has ruptured the relationship, then that can be a healthy place to acknowledge our mistakes. But shame is actually a 
psychological experience of like disintegration in our nervous system. It's a lot deeper than how we might have understood it before. And I think that most experience of shame have a trauma element to it. And we can teach children and people responsibility through the four steps of chuva, actually, more so than any um, shaming or humiliating experience. So I think when you're saying that um, it would be problematic if there's no shame, I think what you're really saying, it would be problematic if there's no introspection, if there's no self-awareness, if there's no repair. Absolutely, that would be problematic, which is why we're talking about that. But shame um, is a much more intense nervous system response where the, especially for children, the nervous system can collapse under that. Um, we don't necessarily have the capacity as children to bear shame by ourselves. Um, and in terms of healing shame, the way that we heal shame is with safety and security in connection and a relationship. And we need to have a safe relationship through which we can then be introspective enough to look at our flaws and the things where we're vulnerable and where we have to grow and change. But without the established relationship first, it can quickly devolve into um, shame and the destructive guilt that you were referencing earlier. And then healing and repair is not possible in that state. We just get stuck in it. So it sounds almost like the definition that psychologists and therapists are using is a much deeper one than the one that mostly people are understanding where you're like, oh, I'm so ashamed that I did that. You know, let me make it better. And that maybe is more in line with the remorse, the regret, the guilt, like you said, which are more healthier um, thoughts or feelings rather than a much deeper definition of shame. And I'm not really saying that there's no place for it as much as I'm saying that when we experience it, there needs to be healing. Got it. So that should alert us that there, there needs to be healing. And actually, I think that I, I don't not that this is just my own idea. I think that that's the also the wisdom of having Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur, that the month of Elul is about focusing on the relationship with God. And that's Anila Dodi Vajodi Lee, that I am for my beloved and my beloved is for me. It's all about the relationship with God and working on that and developing that and understanding that, really understanding that there's a relationship with a higher power. And that all culminates on the day of Rosh Hashanah, where the symbol and the day of really celebrating the relationship with God. And then the month of Tishrei is the month of introspection where we can take ownership, where we can be self-aware and we can look at our actions and see in what ways we may have contributed to rupturing the relationship and then working to repair it. And I think that if we wouldn't have Rosh Hashanah first, Yom Kippur would just be shame. It would just be devolving into that de destructive um, guilt and not allow us to heal. So first there has to be the establishment of there's a relationship here. There's someone to connect to 
there's a safety and security in which we can look at our vulnerabilities and look at our challenges and flaws. And then we can do it in a, in a safe way where we could, it can lead to healing and repair. Very interesting. So it's more about the relationship, like sort of, I don't want to say it's a two-way street because it, it's us really doing all of the work, but it, it's, is a, it is a two-way street in that, I mean, I, I'm not sure what you were going to say in terms of a two-way street, but um, the idea between God and his people is a two-way street. It's There's a bris, which means a contract where like he's saying what his commitment to the relationship is, and then we have our commitment to a relationship. But right. I'm sorry, you're right. I'm not sure if you were going to say. No, you were... you're absolutely right. But it it's harder to see the other partner doing the work. You know, like if you go to marriage counseling and you live in the same house as the other person, and you get advice that you know you two need to work on X Y Z, whatever communication, whatever. Mm-hmm. So if you're living with the other person in your household, then you can see where you're doing the work, where he's doing the work. If one of you is not doing the work, you know, there's, it's more, um, it's more present and, and it's more obvious, but with our relationship with God, it's, I guess we're working more on faith that God is keeping his end of the, the deal too. Um, but we don't really see it in real time as much. Although, you know, yeah. you can connect to your spirituality. There's always this feeling at the end of Yom Kippur, like you just feel different, you know? It doesn't last very long for me, at least. Um, but you know, if you've done the work and like you've been in shul all day, you've been fasting, you've been really connecting to your spiritual side. There's a feeling that you know there's something different when you walk out of shul. Yeah, and I think you know there's no greater evidence to God willing to do His part in the relationship as offering Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to us. He's inviting us almost to couples counseling every single year. He's basically saying, let's work on our relationship. I, your, my relationship with you matters to me and I want to work on the relationship. And I wanna give you the opportunity for you to work on the relationship and for you to be closer to me. So I know that that can sound like a lofty idea and it can be hard to connect to it, but a lot of the concepts that we're talking about, they're more ideals, they're more ways of understanding, and then the work begins. So it doesn't mean that you have to feel this connected and this, and as I'm describing it, but it's more something as a framework that there's a relationship here. And actually last year before Rosh Hashanah, I heard um, a therapist speak about um, Rosh Hashanah and what to have in mind. And she said something so beautiful that I always think about. And she described showing up to Rosh Hashanah as, as like showing up to a therapy session. And I really love that idea of seeing God as a therapist, where the work of showing up is, is the biggest part of the work. Like I'm showing up, I'm choosing to do the work. I want to be vulnerable. I want to want to be vulnerable. I want to become aware of what I am not aware of. I want to work through it. And I just, I love that idea of showing up with vulnerability, just like I'm here. I'm ready to do the work. I want to have a relationship 
with myself and with God and with my peers. Yeah. And, you know, I think that more in more recent years, this idea of a relationship with Hashem is more of, you know, a loving relationship uh, rather than a scary relationship has really been developed a lot. Um, when I was a kid, I don't know about your experience in school, but the message was much more of a fearful relationship. There was a lot of focus on more like punishment for your sins. And I'm, I'm not saying that's not important to learn. You know, of course, we believe in, in punishment for sins as well. But we sort of learned that, you know, first you have to have a relationship of yira, of fear, and only then can you have a relationship of ahava, of love, right? But it seems like nowadays, uh, especially with our younger people, the Rebbeim and the Moros, they're teaching more of this loving relationship of connection with Hashem, right? We see this like huge worldwide movement of thank you, Hashem, of serving Hashem with joy, of, you know, understanding that Hashem loves us. Hashem doesn't want to be, you know, attacking us constantly for every time we put a toe out of line, but, you know, really developing this relationship of love with Hashem. And I think it's so interesting to frame Chuva as part of that relationship of a loving partner rather than just out of fear of punishment. So we better do Chuva quickly before the whole world implodes because, you know, it's all of our fault, you know, and gets yeah. a very interesting concept. Yeah, me too. And also the idea of thinking about God as our therapist can be very healing for those of us who may have experienced ruptures in relationships with family. So like perhaps someone who's been traumatized from their family may not want to think about God as a father or as a mother. Um, maybe they didn't have that kind of, maybe there was a lot of shame and a lot of rebuffed attempts to connect with their parents. Um, but thinking of God as a therapist where healing is possible could open up a little bit more space to approach um, Rosh Hashanah in a, in a little bit of a different way than we might have in the past. Very true. I, I did want to also give maybe um, just a practical idea of how we could apply this to relationships as well. Um, just vulnerability and the desire to connect that, and you mentioned uh, if there's some conflict be in a marriage and wanting each partner to do the work. Um, we often learn to communicate mistakes that other people have made or how they've impacted us by saying, you know, you did, you yelled at me and I really don't like when you yell at me and I want you to stop yelling at me when, um, when you're upset, um, which is communicating but we could also apply some of these principles as a way of communicating that also repairs the relationship. So one idea is to say, you know, I was, I feel really frightened when you yell at me, or I find myself shutting down when you yell at me. And when I'm shutting down, it's hard for me to connect to you. And my relationship with you really matters to me. And I want to be able to connect to you. So I'm sharing to you with you what my experience is so that you know what's happening. And with that in mind, like that communicating 
letting the other person know what is happening inside, like what emotional experience is happening and why it matters. It, it matters because it's affecting the way that we can connect to each other. And the relationship is then at stake and the relationship matters. So that's a way of communicating to keep, always keep in mind that the relationship is of the utmost importance and the healing of the ruptures that might occur. Mm -hmm. And that all relates back to the juva process too. Right. Self-awareness, remorse, getting space, and then making a real plan for repair. So you can use it as a way of you doing the healing, but also a way of bringing awareness to the other party in the relationship that some healing needs to be done. True, exactly. But it always starts with acknowledging like, oh, this is what's happening to me in relation to you. And when this happens to me in relation to you, it puts our connection at risk. Right. And I don't want our relationship to be at risk. And I also just wanted to add one thing from what you said earlier, that maybe there are old ideas about how we, as Jewish people, we do the Torah ideology is related to sin and punishment, but I don't believe that. I believe that it has much more to do with making mistakes and having the experiencing the impact of those mistakes. And so a lot of what we've called punishment is not actually punishment. It's just the consequences or the natural outcome of the choices that we make. And then anything that happens subsequently, it's about trying to learn and grow so that we can repair and heal. So I don't think that it actually is a Jewish concept of just you do something wrong and then some punisher steps in to give you retribution. It's if there is a punishment, it's for the sake of learning and growing. So it's a consequence more than a punishment. Exactly. Or a natural outcome. Right. So even going back to my example of the natural outcome of having a partner yell at us when we're trying to resolve something is that I shut down and then it's harder for me to communicate. That's a natural consequence of it, but then we could address it and repair it. Interesting. Um, I just wanted to stick in here because I've heard this said by Rabbi Akiva Tatz. Um, and it's something that I hadn't learned before. He says that as part of the chuba process, when you have to commit to never doing it again, you have to actually say it. And he points out that it's not in any machzer. When you do the vidoy and all of that on Yom Kippur, you list the sins and you obviously, part of that is feeling the regret and the remorse, but nowhere in the machzer does it say, I'm never going to do it again. And the reason he cites is because the mahter can't say that for us. We have to mean it ourselves. But he does say that it is a crucial part of the chuva process. And if you don't specifically say that you're not going to do it again, then you haven't really completed the steps of chuva according to the halachos of the Rambam. So I'm just sticking that in there as more of like a practical point. Mm -hmm. um, but speaking of Yom Kippur, um, I wanted to discuss with you a little bit the concept of forgiveness. 
because that can be a really tough concept for so many different reasons. I mean, just, you know, from the work that you do, right, with the, with trauma um, victims and just anybody who has experienced different traumas throughout their lives may not look at themselves as a victim, but, you know, traumatic experiences happen to virtually everyone at some point. Very often the trauma experience was at the hands of another person, right? How do you just go and forgive that person, right, for what they've done to you? It can often be extremely painful. Um, it's also very hard to put into this frame of mind of like, you have to forgive, right? Which by the way, you know, as a sign of the Torah, it doesn't say you have to, um, just that it's very commendable if you do forgive. But I want to talk about the concept of forgiveness from a psychological perspective a little bit. Um, and, you know, sort of like a mental health perspective to go hand in hand with the with the work and the Torah's perspective of forgiveness that we're going to be looking at as well, um, more in the Yom Kippur phase of this. Yeah, that's a, a, an important thing to address. Um, well, I, I want to just make a general statement first that there, if someone has been victimized by another person, they are under no obligation to forgive that other person for having harmed them. Um, I, I need to make that absolutely clear. Um, sometimes as part of the healing process, there might be a place for forgiveness, but it is not an obligation. And um, I think it can be an unfair burden to place on someone who has survived something traumatic at the hands of, of a perpetrator. I think part of that is also related to the idea that Forgiveness isn't really possible if there's no responsibility. So in order for forgiveness to happen, there has to be someone taking responsibility for something. Um, and I think a lot of times that that doesn't necessarily happen when there's a perpetrator involved, that there isn't someone taking responsibility. Now, there can be acceptance there can be letting go of something, there can be healing, there can be moving on, but not necessarily forgiveness. Um, but I wanna focus more, rather than looking at forgiving other people, especially those who have harmed us, I wanna look more at forgiving ourselves. And that's, the, I think, the biggest part of the Mechila process, especially for someone who has experienced trauma, um, that in the moment of crisis and in the experience of trauma, a person does whatever they need in order to survive. And that could be fighting back, that could be running away, and that can be staying silent or capitulating or being subservient in some way because that will lead to their survival. And I just basically use other words to outline um, fight, flight, and freeze, which are the three basic trauma responses. And when a person has to use those kind of responses in order to survive, there can be a lot of feelings, grief, remorse, pain, sadness, loss that come as a result of that because 
they have to, they sometimes have to do things that they wouldn't normally do. They have ways of being in a relationship that, that they would normally not do in within a relationship. So I think that the biggest part of this process is forgiving ourselves and forgiving the parts of ourselves that did the best that they could under the circumstances and use whatever tools they could in order to survive. And so I think that the, the biggest part or a crucial part in the repair is not just repairing our relationship with God, but also repairing our relationship with ourselves, that there are parts of ourselves that might've become exiled, that might've, we, we might've banished, we might be ashamed of, we might be so um, afraid that they exist within us and repairing those relationships with those parts of ourselves um, through forgiving and understanding why we did what we did and how it was meant for our survival and how it was it kept us safe and it got us to this place is an important part of healing and forgiving. So I would, any person who's, who has experienced trauma and, or is dealing with having experienced something at the hands of a perpetrator, I would refocus the work to healing and forgiving parts of ourselves um, and and not focus for sure, not at the beginning or not until you're really far along in the healing process on forgiving any perpetrator, if ever. That's really interesting. And I also, I wanted to point out this, I'll also quote Rabbi Tatz, if you can't tell, I've listened to a lot of his year before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but um, on the topic of forgiveness, he always makes the point to say that um, forgiving another person doesn't mean that you have to go back to where you were in the relationship with them before they did what they did to you. So if someone else did something very hurtful to you, for example, um, you feel like you want to let go of what happened and move forward. That doesn't mean that you have to then allow this person fully back into your life to the same extent as they were before, because that's just opening yourself up to be hurt again. And so I think a lot of people might equate forgiveness with a total repair of the relationship. And I think it's a very sort of comforting concept to understand that you can forgive the person without allowing them to have the exact same relationship with you as they did beforehand. You can create some boundaries, you can create some barriers so that this doesn't happen again. So for example, if the person was always over at your house and you were always over at their house and you would go up for coffee twice a week and then something very, very hurtful happened. That doesn't mean you have to go back to doing that in order to have fully forgiven them. Right. So I thought that was a very important thing to understand um, and a very helpful thing to understand. Well, I think that also it's not just, you don't have to go back. It's, you can't go back. Right, almost you should And that's a good thing. No, right. I, I don't even mean like, I, I don't even think it's a choice. It's like, there's the both of you, hopefully through the process are different people. And there's a real acknowledgement that there needs to be change. And there's that work to change. So there is no going back. There's, you know, there's that greater introspection and awareness of what actually happened. And and when it's done in this healthy way, in this constructive way, there is only moving 
forward. Right, um, for sure. I but think, I think like a more sort of rudimentary childish understanding of forgiveness is yeah, you have to wipe the other person's slate completely clean and make it like it never happened. Because I think part of the reason we may understand it that way is because we, when we learn about Hashem forgiving us, we learn that Hashem completely wipes our slate clean like it never happened before. I remember very clearly in elementary school, we had a teacher who, to, to illustrate this to us, she scrunched up a piece of paper like into a ball and then she unfolded it and there was all sorts of creases on it. And she said, you know, this is sort of a more human response. You can never, you know, fully go back to 100% even if you do the work and, you know, regret what you've done, whatever, but Hashem takes it a step further for us. And Hashem makes the paper as if it's fresh and clean and it never had any scrunched up marks on it at all. Right. Because in reality, you can't completely, um, th that paper will never be completely the same once you've scrunched it up. But for Hashem, it's different. He can completely, you know, turn that paper back to the way it was without a single crease in it. So when we learn that, we tend to think that that's what's required of us for forgiveness, right? Because that's the way Hashem forgives us. He can wipe our slate completely clean. Not only that, we sometimes learn it a step further. If you do the tshuva process correctly, Hashem will turn your chataim into mitzvos, right? Have you ever learned that? Yeah. So, you know, that's a very tall order if we relate to that and think that we have to do that too towards another person, you know, but right. we don't. I mean... I, I hear you. I think that all these ideas, um, again, they start off in a more simplistic explanation as we're learning them. And they have a lot more depth and layers to it as we get older. Absolutely. And I think that there's a lot of different ways of understanding wiping the slate clean. I think we can understand it more as um, like the potential that's there, that we're back to an understanding of the capacity for each human being, the potential of the depth of a relationship that we have the capacity for with um, God, with ourselves and with our fellow human being. That's the way that I understand that. Yeah, for sure. And that's exactly why I wanted to do this because there's so many of these themes and ideas that we're used to from this time of the year that, um, we sort of relate to back from what we've learned in childhood and, you know, with so much more knowledge and so much more maturity, we can understand them in a very different way. And that's exactly, you know, what my goal was. And that's exactly why I wanted you to do it because I know that you have such a good and well-rounded and developed understanding of these concepts from a psychological perspective. And you can so fluidly relate them to the Torah perspective. And I really, really appreciate that you've done that so beautifully. I think it's so important, you know, to be able to view these things from a more developed and mature perspective as we get older um, and not just sort of fall back on these ideas, very basic um, rudimentary ideas from our childhoods. Yeah. And um, I think that I appreciate what you're saying. And also that um, all of the work that I do with my clients and what I encourage um, people to just consider that um, we all have the capacity for healing 
and resiliency and connection and compassion and curiosity. And it's about accessing those that um, energy, that self energy that we all have the capacity for and um, updating. Sometimes we have these archaic ideas that kind of get recycled in our minds and our ways of looking at ourselves and at the world. And sometimes it's just about updating it. There doesn't need to be a whole overhaul of the system. We definitely don't need to get rid of any parts of ourselves. We just need an update, a system update, like, oh, that was how it was conceptualized as a child because that's how a child might understand it. And now we need to update it to a more evolved, adult, mature perspective. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I just wanted to mention one more thing that um, ultimately all of our talk is about being able to take responsibility for the choices that we have in our lives. And in order to be able to take responsibility, we need to be aware. So the first step would be self-awareness or acknowledgement, and then moving into being able to make the choice to live, the choice to heal, the choice to grow. And we may not be at the final stage of the healing process and at the beginning stage or whatever stage we're in, just show up. Showing up is what needs to happen. That's really beautiful. And like you said earlier, the whole month of Elul going into Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur is Hashem giving us the opportunity to show up, to reach out, to start that repair process. But the way you just framed it is it's not about completing the process necessarily on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, but it's about showing up and making the choice to start the process and to reach out. And, you know, we're not a finished product on Yom Kippur, but we can view it as now this is just the first step and we're going to keep it going from here. That's a really interesting way to reframe it. And I really like that idea. And just one last thing that the first step of Vidoy self-awareness is not the prerequisite. It's the first step, which means show up and then do the first step. You don't have to do the first step and then show up. You do the, you show up and then you do the first step. Right. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. With that said, Essie, thank you so, so much for giving me your time, your wisdom, your expertise. It's always such a pleasure and so valuable. And I'm just so glad that we were able to have this discussion and really, you know, my goal was to sort of reframe these old concepts and build upon them into more mature concepts. And I think you've really, really done that for us. And I want to wish you a very inspiring, very uplifting Elul and Rosh Hashanah and subsequently Yom Kippur. And I hope that you get everything out of it that you need with your relationship with Hashem and everybody else as well, everybody who's listening and uh, who is also going to use these steps to better their chuba process this year. And just in life in general, like we've discussed, these concepts can be used so beautifully and integrated so perfectly into so many different types of relationships. And I think that is super valuable. So thank you so much, Essie. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much.